Well, a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> I preached from Psalm 99. The topic there, the focus there is the holiness of God. And in that sermon, I briefly referenced 1 Peter 1, 14, where Peter says, Be like the Holy One yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter gives here a key response when we consider the holiness of God, and that is the pursuit of holiness ourselves. And so I think it's important today, just by way of follow-up, you could call it part two of that message, that we give attention to what it means for us to be holy. That we consider and think about what it looks like for us to be pursuing holiness. Evangelist Vance Havner once said, If you want to be popular, preach happiness. If you want to be unpopular, preach holiness. So today I guess I'm going to choose to be unpopular. Because we're going to talk about holiness, our holiness. Because indeed holiness has fallen on hard times these days. Uh, Rarely it seems do preachers talk about holiness or challenge us to be holy or even reference the topic. In fact, it is quite the opposite because many preachers themselves are living unholy lives. And I don't need to go through example after example we have seen even just in the last several years. And certainly what happens in the pulpit happens in the pew, perhaps even to a greater degree in some places. I don't need to quote the statistics on the divorce rate among Christians or the prevalence of immorality or pornography or drug use or immorality or embezzling or all these kinds of things that are seen among those who name the name of Christ. Yet so many pulpits remain silent because if you want to be popular, preach happiness. If you want to be unpopular, preach holiness. Preacher, yeah, don't, don't talk to me about sin. Don't, don't tell me about those things that are going to make me feel guilty. Preacher, don't, don't tell me something about what I'm doing wrong. Just, just tell me those things that make me feel good. Tell me those things that will make me smile at the end of the day. Tell me those things that society deems acceptable. Just keep tickling my ears, but don't you dare, preacher, poke my heart. I think that's the mindset among many. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ died for more than that. Ephesians 5.25 tells us, Christ gave himself up for the church so that he might sanctify her, that he might present to himself a people that are holy and blameless. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us before the foundation of the earth that we would be holy and blameless. Colossians 1.22 says, Christ reconciled us in his fleshly body through death in order to present us before him holy and blameless. Titus 2, 14 says these words, Christ gave himself up for us to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself to lead us away from worldliness, not into it. Jesus Christ died that we might be cleansed from sin, not wallow in it. Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross to instill in us a love for holiness. Not a passion for sin. Charles Spurgeon once said these words, If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I can no longer live in sin, but must arouse myself to love and serve Him who has redeemed me. I will glory my Redeemer, right? We just sung that. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for His sake. How can I live in sin when He has died to save me from it. Amen, Pastor Spurgeon. How can we pursue 
what Jesus came to eliminate? How can we live in such a way, a way that Jesus died to save us from? How can we entertain that which killed our best friend? And so it is important that we talk about holiness this morning. It's important that we talk about what holiness, holiness is, why it is important, how to pursue it in the midst of an unworldly, ungodly culture and an unholy world. And so this morning we're going to look in the book of 1 Peter for answers. Two passages in particular, so please turn there with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And the message this morning is entitled, A Holy Priesthood. We'll begin in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, in the first two chapters of this letter, we see two reasons that Peter gives to strive for holiness. Two reasons why we should make it our aim in the Christian life to be holy. Two reasons are simply this. I'll give them up front. We are saved to be holy, and we are to be holy to save. Saved to be holy, and be holy to save context of 1 Peter begins in the very first verse. Let's start there together. Peter, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure." Now, here in these first couple of verses, we see not only the author, who is the Apostle Peter, but notice as well, to those whom he is writing. He says, to those who are chosen through the work of the Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And notice as well, he refers to them in a certain way as aliens, or the ESV translated as exiles, or New King James says pilgrims. Literally, the Greek text says sojourners of the diaspora. What does that mean? Well, this tells us a little bit about their circumstances. These are believers who have been spread out throughout the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And we find out later in the letter they are scattered mainly because they are being persecuted. Mainly because they are suffering trials. And in fact, the major theme of this letter addresses the fact that they were suffering through trial and difficulty and persecution. Mainly because they were believers. We see this right away in verse 6 of chapter 1. Notice he says there, you've been distressed by various trials. And then later in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. These people were going through hardship. They were going through difficulty. They were suffering, particularly persecution. And so as as Peter writes to them, to, to those who were suffering, to those who were dispersed in a strange land, notice how he begins the body of his letter in verse 3. Look there where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Now I find it interesting here. Peter, what does he first draw their attention to in this letter? Again, remember to whom he is writing. A people who are scattered, who are persecuted, who are suffering. And in the midst of their suffering, what is it that Peter begins to focus on them upon? The fact they've been reborn, right? 
The fact that they have a future inheritance reserved for them. The fact that, in short, they have eternal life. And he doesn't just say, I know you are suffering, but remember you are saved and remember what is to come. Notice he doesn't stop there, but in the verses to come, he talks about what they need to do in response. That brings us to our first point today, saved to be holy. He begins with the fact that they are saved. Take a look down with me at verse 13. Therefore, and here's Peter's call to respond. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. And here's the verse I mentioned a moment ago. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you address as the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. There's a lot of action words here. A lot of direction, a lot of commands, a lot of instruction that Peter is giving here in response. And notice verse 13 begins with the word therefore. He's drawing back to what he has said in the first 12 verses, particularly the focus on what he has said regarding the fact that they are saved, they are reborn. And now in verse 13, he's going to link that promise, he's going to link that truth to a response, to a command. Several commands, in fact. Knowing we've been born again, knowing that we have a living hope, knowing that we have an inheritance, a future inheritance stored up for us, knowing that we have eternal life, this is how we must respond. And he gives a threefold response here. Three commands. Fix your hope, be holy, conduct yourselves. The first response is to fix our hope firmly on the grace that we will experience when Jesus returns. He's saying, he's telling us here, don't be fixed on your circumstances. Don't be anxious about what you are going through. Don't focus your attention solely on the trials that you are experiencing, but rather fix your hope. That is, plant your attention on what is to come. And that's the first response he gives. The second, and this is the one I want to focus our attention on, the second response is the command here where he says, essentially, be holy, verse 15. Be holy. And what does that mean? Well, we talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago. Some picture holiness as something that you only reach after years of of meditation and years of solitude. Others think of holiness as a uh, thing for those super saints. That just describes the super Christians. You know, the ones that walk around where you can sort of see a halo floating over their head. Still others associate the word holiness negatively. They connect it to those Pharisees or Pharisee-like people who have these lists of rules and they're always going around making sure everyone's keeping those rules. But the word that Peter uses for holy here, hagias, is simply the idea of being set apart, being consecrated. Just as we learned a couple of weeks ago regarding God, that He is completely set apart The word being used here in regards to us is that we too are set apart. But set apart from what and by whom and for what? Well, in the Bible, Haggai is used not only in reference to God, not only in reference to the saints, but also in reference to many things. Many objects even are described as holy. A survey of Scripture shows that many things that God declared to be holy. The the Ark of the Covenant being one. The ground at the burning bush. The temple. The priestly garments. The utensils. The priest's oil. Many of the things surrounding the temple. All of these were declared as holy. But none of them are holy 
because of their inherent holiness. All of them are holy only because God declared them to be so. God set them apart. God had a purpose for them. These things were not for common use. And that's what Peter is saying here about us. That's what he's saying here, that that we are a people who God has set apart for himself. That word saints, you know what that means? Holy ones, set apart ones. It's in the very description and basic definition of a believer. 1 Peter 2.9, he says these words, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And if you get anything out of this message, get this. This is so fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. Do you realize that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that if you are a believer, if you put your trust in Him and Him alone, if you've confessed your sins to Him and sought His forgiveness and made a commitment to follow Him by His grace for the rest of your days, then you are set apart. You are consecrated for Him, for His purposes, for His service. It's the most fundamental identity we have as a believer. It really frames everything about what it means to be a Christian because first and foremost, God wants His people to be set apart. To be set apart. He's always wanted that. In fact, notice in verse 16, the basis that Peter gives for being holy. What does he say there? Take a look there. Verse 16, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And we'll get to that in a minute. But notice those first words there, because it is written. Peter here is actually not coming up with this on his own. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the book of Leviticus. And if you're familiar with that book, it's an interesting book, right? It it has all of these descriptions of the sacrificial system and, and all of the laws and instructions regarding the food restrictions, regarding clothing restrictions, regarding all these different Principles and instructions, law after law after law, and some of them seeming rather strange at times. And Just what was the point of all that? We've got a whole book that God wrote called Leviticus focused on these things. Why was it so important to him? What was he getting at? Why was he so specific about how he wanted the Israelites to live? Well, throughout all of his instruction, if you read through the book of Leviticus, and we're all reading through the Bible this year, right? We'll get to Leviticus in a little while. But throughout the whole book, you're going to notice this. There's a phrase repeated over and over and over again. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh, your God. I am Yahweh, your God. Over and over, you will see that. And also, in addition to that, in many places, he adds these words. You shall be holy, for I am Yahweh, your God. Leviticus 11:44, Leviticus 19, chapter 2. Leviticus 20 verse 7 and then again in 20 verse 26 he says this thus you are to be holy to me for i the lord am holy and i have set you apart from the peoples to be mine did you hear that i god says to them have set you apart to be peoples of mine and it's no different today it's no different for the church it's no different for believers Again, 1 Peter 2.9, speaking to the church, Peter says, we are a people for God's own possession. Titus 2.14, Jesus died that he may redeem a people for his own possession. Again, in Ephesians 1.14, we are God's own possession. It's the same idea. So Peter, when he's quoting from Leviticus, 
which says, be holy for I am holy. He's importing this whole idea from Leviticus that we are God's possession. That we as his people are consecrated and set apart by God and for God. We are his, which means we don't do what we want to do. We do what he wants us to do. It means that we are not consecrated to live however we want, but how he wants. It means that we are not to behave in whatever way we choose, but how God wants us to behave. Because if you are saved, brothers and sisters, you are God's possession. You're not independent. You're not a self-made man or woman. You're not an, an, an entity that is separate from. You are God's possession. God owns you. He owns all of us. In fact, John MacArthur put it this way. As a result of that, we owe God holiness. We sung about that earlier. So, brothers and sisters, this this mindset is so important because there's so much arguing and debating about uh, where the line is on a particular issue and what is right and what is wrong and what is a gray area. What does it mean to be black and white and all these different things about rules and regulations? We we argue so much about where the line is that we forget a very important point. That's not the main issue. The main issue is what we are pursuing. We are set apart by God and for God, for His service, for His use, for His possession, for His glory. And I know we know these things. I don't think I'm saying anything that that you've never heard before. But it's just important to remind ourselves, as, as I mentioned earlier, God saved us not just for heaven, but for holiness. He redeemed us not just to to free us from sin, but to conform us to the image of His Son. Do you realize salvation has two parts to it? It's not just being forgiven of the sin, but it's also receiving the righteousness of Christ. It's not just, we're not fit for heaven if God just simply forgives our sin. We need to be righteous and holy before Him. It's great to be forgiven, but that's not all of it. Justification also means to be given the righteousness of Christ. Again, God's aim, His goal, His desire, His purpose is that we be holy, that we be set apart, that we be different, that we be like Jesus. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us that we should be holy and blameless. Ephesians 5.25, Christ gave Himself up for us that He would make His bride holy and blameless before him. And then notice, even at the beginning of this letter in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, to those who are chosen, and then verse 2, to obey Jesus. Listen, we've been saved for us, not for us, but for him. We've been plucked out, rescued out of this world, not so that we can have the world, but so that we can have him. In fact, the opposite of being set apart for God is being immersed in the world. Worldliness is in direct contrast to holiness. And actually, do you know what worldliness is? You can think of it this way. Worldliness is the worship of pleasure rather than the pleasure of worship. You know what I mean by that? It's the worship of pleasure for ourselves rather than the pleasure of worship of God. That's worldliness at its basic level. And Peter makes it clear that God does not want us to be worldly, but to be holy. Why? Look again at verse 16. We are to be holy in chapter 1 for or because he is holy. 
And notice how Peter emphasizes this per- point in the verse right before. In verse 15, he says, like the Holy One who called you. You see, the reason God has set us apart, the reason He desires that we be a holy people has to do with our identity. Martin Lloyd-Jones said these words, Holiness is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It is something we are to do because of what we already are. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be like Him. We are to be like God our Father. Consider the beginning of verse 14. He says this, As obedient children. And then notice in verse 17, it says, If you address as Father, we're to be set apart for God and by God, because we are His children. That's the fundamental relationship that he's speaking of here. The Apostle John goes into great detail and even marvels at it. He he says in verse 1 of chapter 3 in 1 John, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, and he can't believe this, that we would be called children of God. Can you believe it? It's amazing. That tone is exactly, because John opens that with, Behold, or look at this, this is marvelous. If you're a believer, you are a child of God. And then later to that, he adds in verse 9, No one who is born of God, and there's the practical aspect of this, no one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because God's seed abides in him, he says. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Again, it's fundamental to our identity. I mean, mean, nobody is surprised that, that my children have blonde hair. Nobody is surprised that they have similar characteristics physically and in personality as me and my wife. Nobody is shocked that that our children sound like us or have similar mannerisms. There is my son's height, which I'm still trying to figure that one out. but, But you get my point. In the same way, the believer is reborn, born of God, his child. God is now his or her father. And in the same way... We shouldn't be surprised. In fact, we should expect believers to look like him. Right? That's the idea John's getting at. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Or Jesus said in Luke 6.36, just as your father is merciful, you're to be merciful. Matthew 5.48, what is it that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? You're to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so let me ask you. Are you striving to be like your father? Do you remind yourself of this identity? For you see, holiness, it is not about rules and regulations. It's about our relationship. It's centered on our identity. If we are God's children, then innately, inherently, our greatest passion and joy and pursuit should be to be like our Father. It's in our spiritual DNA. And if this really was our mindset, we would be less concerned about how close we can get to some particular line, and we would be more concerned about how we can get nearer to our Father. And this brings me to another important point from this text in 1 Peter, perhaps the most important. Notice there, again back, 1 Peter 14, chapter 1. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy, for I am holy. There's the basis. Why? Because God says, I am holy. If you remember back a couple of weeks ago, I 
had indicated to you then that it is my conviction that the greatest hinder to our holiness, the greatest obstacle to us pursuing and wanting to be holy, the, the greatest barrier is the fact that, honestly, we don't have a very high view or, or large view of God. In fact, for many, it, it's a very small view. You remember those examples that we looked at as well with Isaiah and Peter? Remember Isaiah's response again when he saw a vision of the Son of God on the throne? And what is it that he did, right? He says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm ruined, I'm destroyed. And why was that? What did he realize in that moment? I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner, and here I am viewing in the presence of God the Son. Peter, right? In the boat. When the fish came up after the miracle in Luke chapter 5... Remember his response when those fish came in and it hit him who Jesus was? He said, depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. And again, we're reminded by these examples that both of these men immediately, as they gained a a view of God, as their mind and understanding was expanded, so their understanding of God was expanded, they immediately recognized God is holy, I am not. No one needed to tell him that. It wasn't like there was someone else in the boat with Peter saying, Hey, Peter, 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 pss, pss, pss. now you know what this means, right? Do you realize this event, this miracle shows who this man really is? The, the seraphim who were flying around when Isaiah and Isaiah's vision, they, they didn't come down. To, okay, pss, Isaiah, now's the time you say this. <laughs> Nobody needed to tell them that. Nobody needed to remind them of how to respond. They could see it. They knew it. They experienced it. Why? Because they saw God, or at least a picture of God in his glory. And listen, when a believer has a high view of God, when a believer has the right view of God, when a believer experiences and understands just who God really is, then not only will they see their own sinfulness, but also will desire to pursue whatever it takes to get rid of it. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And what's interesting as well in those two passages, do you remember what happened? Isaiah was forgiven, right? God put the burning coal on his lips and he's forgiven. And immediately, right? God says, who will I send? And Isaiah says, I'll go. And Peter, right after that event, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And then Jesus says, from now on, you'll fish for men. What did Peter do? Dropped his nets. That's when he made a commitment to follow Christ for good. Very interesting. You see a picture of God. Recognize their own sinfulness. God responds and accepts and forgives. And the response is service. Set apart to do whatever God desires us to do. Again, I'm convinced the main reason for any lack of sensitivity on our part, any lack of sensitivity towards a life of holiness, a pursuit of holiness, and I've seen this in my own life, The main reason is because we don't understand or appreciate the holiness of God. There's a great book I would encourage you to read, R.C. Sproul, called Holiness. Also, too, J.C. Ryle, or or Holiness of God, I think. J.C. Ryle wrote a book called Holiness. It's a series of sermons on the topic. Both of those are excellent, excellent starts in drawing our attention to the holiness of God and our response. To the degree that we comprehend and experience God's holiness, it is to that degree we will pursue it ourselves. 
And so let me ask you, are you making it a habit of being immersed in God's word so that you can grow in your understanding of him, so that you can have a greater glimpse glimpse of who he is? Do you have a high view of God? A.W. Tozer said that's what the the most important thing about any Christian is his or her, her view of God. Would you say that you are pursuing a life of holiness? Is there anything in your life that is hindering you? Take a moment now. I'm just going to pause here for a second for you to think about that. Prayerfully ask the Lord, are there any areas in my life that are hindering me from pursuing holiness and from understanding you? This brings me to one more observation from 1 Peter in these verses in chapter 1. We've seen the command to be holy. We've seen the reason or extent, or we've seen the reason for it, which is, for I am holy. Now I want you to notice the extent. And we see it in just a couple little words. Verse 15, look there. He says, be holy yourselves in, and here it is, in what? All your behavior. Ouch, Peter. Come on. Did you really mean that? All your behavior. Well, the ESV says in all your conduct. The NIV says in all you do. It doesn't take an in-depth study in the original language to know what he's saying here. In this little phrase, it's something that we tend to skip over, right? We, we, we understand and remember, be holy for I am holy. But, but that little addition, in all your behavior, that's, that's one I don't hear often quoted. I think in practice, for many of us, many in the church, it's be holy in in nearly all your behavior. Be holy in most of your conduct. Be holy in, in what is not too difficult to do. Be holy when things are going well. Right? We seem to have um, our little sins that we hold on to. Or we seem to have those things in our lives that we don't think are that important to deal with. Uh, I think of Jerry Bridges' book called Respectable Sins. He addresses a number of sins there in the life of the believer that we tend to minimize or overlook or ignore. We all have our reasons or excuses that we don't have the same vigilance in all of our conduct. We all have those areas that we are blind to or that we choose not to give attention to for many different reasons. So, Again, take a moment, ask yourself, is there anything in your life, a consistent pattern in your life that that you know you're not giving attention to, that you know you're not pursuing holiness in that area? Ask the Spirit of God to bring that to your mind. Remember, brothers and sisters, we are saved to be holy. Secondly, we must be holy to save. Peter addresses this in the second chapter. We must be holy to save. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, take a look at 1 Peter 2, verse 5. Here Peter gives a description of believers. And he says in verse 5, You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual House for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
Notice he says here again, we are to be, uh, we are being built up. For what purpose? We are being built up, and here's that word again, to be a holy priesthood. Peter further emphasizes this idea of believers being set apart. But notice he mentions set apart, and he just gives us a hint as to what that means, that, that we are set apart as a holy priesthood. He's drawing here a comparison, a comparison between believers and the Old Testament priests. So we need to understand what is it about the Old Testament priests, or what is it that he's trying to focus our attention on. Well, first we need to recognize the Old Testament priests were, were chosen by God, God chose the tribe of Levi to be the tribe of the priests. They were specifically consecrated by him, set apart for him. They had to go through particular ceremony in order to be made holy. They were called to a life of obedience. And then they were commissioned to serve as a mediator for the people. And this is key. I mentioned this last time in Psalm 99 with Moses and Samuel and Aaron. Remember, they were described as priests and they called out to God on behalf of the people and God answered. Well, here again, we see this idea of intercession. We see this idea of being a mediator. We see this idea of a a go-between between God and people. And who is it here that is that go-between? Who is it, brothers and sisters? Jesus is the ultimate mediator, but now he has commissioned us to be a holy priesthood. We have been commissioned to be a part of, to be set apart for others' salvation. That's what he's getting at here. We see this clearly expressed in the verses that follow. Look down at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You see all the concepts we've been talking about here. So that, notice the so that, So that what? You may form a commune, run off in isolation, and live your life separate from everyone else. That's what Israel wanted to do. No, the so that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's expressing the same point here in two different ways. The first is by declaration in verses 9 and 10, and the second is by exhortation in verses 11 and 12. Verses 9 and 10, Peter declares, you are, and then he follows this, you are, with the list, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession. And notice that these things are echoing much of what Peter already said in the first chapter. But what's interesting is in this list, not only does Peter mirror what he said before, But most of these descriptions, and if you notice, some of your Bibles, the NAS puts them in capital letters. You see that? That means that uh, the New American Standard Translation is telling you this is a, a quote or a reference to an Old Testament passage. And if you notice, most of those descriptions there are in capital letters. Why? Because these were descriptions used of the people of Israel that God had declared about them. They were to be a light to the nations, right? They were supposed to be God's people who would draw be a means to draw the nations to himself. 
They were supposed to be the preachers of righteousness and those who lived it out in the world. And here we find the primary connection that Peter is making between us, the church, and Israel. Take note of the words there again, so that. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, so that we would proclaim His excellencies. He's not saved us and set us apart so that we would just focus on our lives and our needs and and what we desire and our ambitions. Again, that's the path Israel took. No, we are set apart to be holy, not in separation from the world, but so that we would be sent into the world. Sent to be the means of their salvation because we are sent to be the proclaimers of Jesus Christ and His message, to be those who declare who Jesus is and what He has done, to be those who cry out of the mercy of God, that He offers a way out for any who would repent and believe. I like how John Piper put it. He said, God has given us the joy of spiritual sight so that we might spread the reputation of our eye doctor. I like that. God has given us the joy of spiritual sight so that we might go out and spread the reputation of our eye doctor. Beloved, just as we are saved to be holy, so also we must be holy to save. Notice in verse 11, Peter also gives us a caution by way of an exhortation. In verses 9 and 10, he made the declaration. Here in verses 11 and 12, it's an exhortation. As we are sent into the world, he says... Look there, verse 11 with me. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Interesting that he used those terms alien and strangers, because remember who they are? Remember his audience? These are aliens and strangers in the world. They're spread out from their nation. And so Peter draws on that in the same way. You're not of this world at all. But you're sent into it. But you have to be careful. We are sent into this world to live in this world, to be proclaimers in this world, but we are not to live in the world. We are sent into it, but not to live in it. Does that make sense? That's why Peter reminds us we're aliens and strangers. This is not our home. This is not the place where we are to find our comfort. This is not where we invest our treasure. This is not where we are to seek ultimate satisfaction. And it is not our hope, right? This is Satan's domain. Satan's called the God of this world. And as such, it's full of temptations, right? It's full of enticements. It's full of hindrances. It's full of barriers. It's full of those things that would cater to our fleshly lusts. And that's why Peter says, abstain from those lusts. Fight! Resist! You're at war! That's what a set-apart person understands. And yes, though we are a new creature... Our fleshly desires are still there and they don't go down without a fight. And certainly Satan seeks to do all that he can to stir them up by way of temptation. But the Apostle Paul, right, he reminds us of something very important in Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Spirit, he said, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's a promise that if we walk by faith, essentially, trusting in God's word, depending on him in prayer, fellowshipping with His people, pursuing obedience regardless of the cost. If we walk by the Spirit, He will give us the victory. He will empower us to be holy. Notice in verse 12, Peter further emphasizes the importance of holiness when he says, keep your behavior excellent. Notice there the word behavior. 
We saw it earlier in chapter 1, verse 15. Also notice the word keep here. Now, it's translated in the New American Standard as a command, keep. But actually, in the original, it's keeping. It's a participle. It's literally having behavior that is excellent. And I mention this because, because keeping is a participle, that means it's modifying the verb abstain. Why is this important, Tim? I'm not here for a grammar lesson. Okay, I understand that. But we need to understand how language works. And here, keeping is modifying abstain because it's telling us how to abstain. How do we wage war against sin? How do we pursue holiness? How do we resist? How do we fight? We resist by pursuing what he calls excellent behavior. That word excellent is the idea of uh, it's the word kalos. It, it means beautiful or, or noble or attractive, desirable, pleasing. So Peter's telling us here that holiness, the battle for holiness, don't just see it as something defensive, but also something offensive. Not offensive, offensive. It's important that we understand that. What's the reason? Why? Again, why are we to pursue holiness? Note again in verse 12, we have another so that here. He says, keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that, here we go again, they may, because of your excellent deeds, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. What does that mean? What's Peter saying here? Live a holy life so that others will be attracted to our message, which will give them a reason to glorify God at Christ's return. Why would they do that? Because they have believed that message. Because they have seen the excellencies of God being proclaimed and then being lived out. Because they have witnessed the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in His followers. Because they have heard the message of salvation being lived out among those who are saved. And thus they have come to faith as well. And Peter Peter here is just echoing what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he remembered those words, I'm sure. When Jesus said this, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good. And by the way, it's the same word here, kalos, good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. Peter's just saying the same thing. We must be holy to save. Now, it's important here we have to be careful of one particular thing. We, don't, we can't isolate what Peter says here in verse 12 from what he said in verses 9 through 11. And I say this because many people make our behavior the emphasis of our witness. You've probably heard the term preach the gospel and if necessary use words. Maybe some of us have even said that. I know I have in the past. Or St. Francis of Assisi is believed to have said... It is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. As for me, I desire to convert the world by obedience to the holy rule, by example rather than by word. This completely misses Peter's point. Certainly, Peter was saying we must not be hypocrites so that the message we proclaim is not uh, defiled or made to be unbelieved because of our behavior. Peter is saying that our deeds will get the attention of the unbeliever, but he's not saying, if necessary, use words. That would 
That would contradict what he said earlier in verse 10, that we are to proclaim, we are to declare. Or later in verse 15 of chapter 3, always be ready, Peter says, to make a defense, to give an account. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, certainly we must not undermine or shame Jesus by our behavior. But our actions alone will not bring another person to salvation. It's not all up to us. Praise God. (laughs) Our actions alone will not bring a man or woman to salvation. Only the gospel does that. Only the message of truth being proclaimed and then empowered by the Holy Spirit. Only that will bring salvation. But at the same time, we do need to remember to be holy, to draw attention to that message, to not undermine it, to not bring it down, to not oppose it by what we say and do. There are two sides of the same coin, really. We must be holy to save. Um, We're having a TMAI conference here um, coming up in March, the beginning of March couple years ago, a few years ago, I was at one of those conferences sitting right up there, and I met a man named Doug Nichols. Uh, He's a missionary. He and his wife, Margaret, have served as missionaries for over 50 years, many of which were in the Philippines. So he was sitting up in the Filipino section up there that I was in and got a chance to meet him. And it's funny, you know, everywhere I go in the Philippines, they talk about Doug. Well, Doug told of a time early on in his ministry, he was serving with uh, Operation Mobilization in India, and he had contracted uh, tuberculosis. He was confined to a hospital there uh, for several months. He didn't speak the language. He didn't really know how to communicate at all with the people there. And he tried on numerous occasions. He had uh, tracts with him in their dialect that he tried to hand out, but nobody was interested. Nobody wanted to take them. No one who even looked. So Doug thought they just saw him as some rich American who was getting free health care there. Well, in any case, Doug said that he'd often woke up in the middle of the night uh, with bouts of coughing because of the the TB that he was experiencing. And one particular night, he noticed a fellow patient. It was an older man, frail man, who was desperately trying to get up out of his bed. He was too weak, though. And after numerous tries, he just gave up, and he, he was crying. Now, Doug didn't realize at that moment why the old man was so desperate to get up until the next morning when there was this horrible stench all through the hospital room. You see, he was trying to get up to use the bathroom. And a lot of the patients were upset with this man and and yelled at him, and it caused him to be so ashamed and to curl up in a ball and weep. And so the next night, Doug woke woke up again, coughing, and again he saw this poor old man trying to get out of bed. So Doug admits that at first he didn't want to get involved. He didn't want to have to endure, though, the terrible odor in the morning. So he got up. He got up. He went over to the bed. He helped the old man out of the bed, helped him to the restroom. He kept the old man propped up while he took care of things. And after he finished, Doug brought him back to his bed and laid him down. And the the old man kissed him on the cheek. This is what's amazing. Doug said the next morning, as he woke up, someone was bringing him a hot cup of tea, one of the other patients. And they were also asking Doug to see his tracks, his literature that he was trying to hand out to them earlier. Even the doctors and the nurses 
came asking. Again, this was they flatly rejected days before. Now they now they wanted to say, what was this material this guy had that he wanted us to read? Sometime later, Doug came across a local evangelist who um, spoke the language and come, came to find out several people in that hospital ward ended up becoming a believer. And as Doug later reflected on that, he realized that all that it took for an open door for the gospel was to take somebody to the bathroom. Now, we know it's more than that. But just in that simple deed, that that noble act, that beautiful behavior, it opened a door and God used it in a mighty way to get the gospel to those who needed it. So let's remember, we must, we are saved to be holy. We must be holy to save. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. So clear, yet so difficult. But we thank you that we are not left to our own to try to be holy. We are not left on our own to try to battle sin, but but that you empower us by your Spirit, that you've made us born again so that we're no longer slaves to sin. You have brought about a change in our hearts. You've given us your Word that your Spirit uses to give us direction and instruction. You've given us one another. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts even this morning, Lord, to passionately desire to be set apart for you in all our behavior, that we would be holy because you are holy. And Lord, that we would be your mouthpiece in what we say and in what we do. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.